Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Chapter 4, Part 1 of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Bobby. A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Chapter 4, Part 1. Sunday was dedicated to the mystery of the Holy Trinity, Monday to the Holy Ghost, Tuesday to the Guardian Angels, Wednesday to St. Joseph, Thursday to the Most Blessed Sacrament of the Altar, Friday to the Suffering Jesus, Saturday to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Every morning he hallowed himself anew in the presence of some holy image or mystery, his day began with an heroic offering of its every moment of thought or action for the intentions of the sovereign pontiff and with an early mass. The raw morning air whetted his resolute piety, and often as he knelt among the few worshippers at the side-altar, following with his interleaved prayer-book the murmur of the priest, he glanced up for an instant towards the vested figure standing in the gloom between the two candles, which were the Old and the New Testaments, and imagined that he was kneeling at Mass in the catacombs. His daily life was laid out in devotional areas. By means of ejaculations and prayers, he stored up ungrudgingly for the souls in purgatory centuries of days and quarantines and years. 
yet the spiritual triumph which he felt in achieving with ease so many fabulous ages of canonical penances did not wholly reward his zeal of prayer since he could never know how much temporal punishment he had remitted by way of suffrage for the agonizing souls and fearful lest in the midst of the purgatorial fire which differed from the infernal only in that it was not everlasting his penance might avail no more than a drop of moisture he drove his soul daily through an increasing circle of works of supererogation. Every part of his day, divided by what he regarded now as the duties of his station in life, circled about its own centre of spiritual energy. His life seemed to have drawn near to eternity. Every thought, word, and deed, every instance of consciousness could be made to re-vibrate radiantly in heaven and at times his sense of such immediate repercussion was so lively that he seemed to feel his soul in devotion pressing like fingers the keyboard of a great cash register and to see the amount of his purchase start forth immediately in heaven, not as a number, but as a frail column of incense or as a slender flower. The rosaries, too, which he said constantly, for he carried his beads loose in his trousers' pockets that he might tell them as he walked the streets, transformed themselves into coronels of flowers of such vague unearthly texture that they seemed to him as hueless and odourless as they were nameless. He offered up each of his three daily chaplets that his soul might grow strong in each of the three theological virtues in faith in the Father who had created him, in hope in the Son who had redeemed him, and in love of the Holy Ghost who had sanctified him. And this thrice triple prayer he offered to the three persons through Mary, in the name of her joyful and sorrowful and glorious mysteries. On each of the seven days of the week he further prayed that one of the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost might descend upon his soul and drive out of it day by day the seven deadly sins which had defiled it in the past. And he prayed for each gift on its appointed day, confident that it would descend upon him, though it seemed strange to him at times that wisdom and understanding and knowledge were so distinct in their nature that each should be prayed for apart from the others. Yet he believed that, at some future stage of his spiritual progress, this difficulty would be removed when his sinful soul had been raised up from its weakness and enlightened by the third person of the Most Blessed Trinity. He believed this all the more, and with trepidation, because of the divine gloom and silence wherein dwelt the unseen paraclete, whose symbols were a dove and a mighty wind, to sin against whom was a sin beyond forgiveness, the eternal, mysterious secret being to whom as god the priests offered up mass once a year robed in the scarlet of the tongues of fire the imagery through which the nature and kinship of the three persons of the trinity were darkly shadowed forth in the books of devotion which he read the father contemplating from all eternity as in a mirror his divine perfections and thereby begetting eternally the eternal son and the Holy Spirit proceeding out of Father and Son from all eternity, were easier of acceptance by his mind by reason of their august incomprehensibility than was the simple fact that God had loved his soul from all eternity, for ages before he had been born into the world, 
for ages before the world itself had existed. He had heard the names of the passions of love and hate pronounced solemnly on the stage and in the pulpit, had found them set forth solemnly in books, and had wondered why his soul was unable to harbour them for any time, or to force his lips to utter their names with conviction. A brief anger had often invested him, but he had never been able to make it an abiding passion, and had always felt himself passing out of it as if his very body were being divested with ease of some outer skin or peel. He had felt a subtle, dark, and murmurous presence penetrate his being, and fire him with a brief iniquitous lust. It, too, had slipped beyond his grasp, leaving his mind lucid and indifferent. This, it seemed, was the only love, and that the only hate his soul would harbour. But he could no longer disbelieve in the reality of love, since God himself had loved his individual soul with divine love from all eternity. Gradually, as his soul was enriched with spiritual knowledge, he saw the whole world forming one vast symmetrical expression of God's power and love. Life became a divine gift for every moment and sensation of which, were it even the sight of a single leaf hanging on the twig of a tree, his soul should praise and thank the giver. The world, for all its solid substance and complexity, no longer existed for his soul save as a theorem of divine power and love and universality. So entire and unquestionable was this sense of the divine meaning in all nature granted to his soul, that he could scarcely understand why it was in any way necessary that he should continue to live. Yet that was part of the divine purpose, and he dared not question its use, he above all others who had sinned so deeply and so foully against the divine purpose. Meek and abased by this consciousness of the one eternal omnipresent perfect reality, his soul took up again her burden of pieties, masses and prayers and sacraments and mortifications, and only then for the first time since he had brooded on the great mystery of love did he feel within him a warm movement like that of some newly born life or virtue of the soul itself. The attitude of rapture in sacred art, the raised and parted hands, the parted lips and eyes as of one about to swoon, became for him an image of the soul in prayer, humiliated and faint before her Creator. But he had been forewarned of the dangers of spiritual exaltation, and did not allow himself to desist from even the least or lowliest devotion, striving also by constant mortification to undo the sinful past rather than to achieve a saintliness fraught with peril. Each of his senses was brought under a rigorous discipline. In order to mortify the sense of sight, he made it his rule to walk in the street with downcast eyes, glancing neither to right nor left, and never behind him. His eyes shunned every encounter with the eyes of women. From time to time he also balked them by a sudden effort of the will, as by lifting them suddenly in the middle of an unfinished sentence and closing the book. To mortify his hearing he exerted no control over his voice, which was then breaking, neither sang nor whistled, and made no attempt to flee from noises which caused him painful nervous irritation, such as the sharpening of knives on the knife-board, the gathering of cinders on the fire-shovel, 
and the twigging of the carpet. To mortify his smell was more difficult, as he found in himself no instinctive repugnance to bad odours, whether they were the odours of the outdoor world, such as those of dung and tar, or the odours of his own person, among which he had made many curious comparisons and experiments. He found in the end that the only odour against which his sense of smell revolted was a certain stale fishy stink like that of long-standing urine, and whenever it was possible he subjected himself to this unpleasant odour. To mortify the taste he practised strict habits at table, observed to the letter all the fasts of the church, and sought by distraction to divert his mind from the savours of different foods. But it was to the mortification of touch that he brought the most assiduous ingenuity of inventiveness. He never consciously changed his position in bed, sat in the most uncomfortable positions, suffered patiently every itch and pain, kept away from the fire, remained on his knees all through the Mass except at the Gospels, left parts of his neck and face undried so that air might sting them, and, whenever he was not saying his beads, carried his arms stiffly at his sides like a runner, and never in his pockets or clasped behind him. He had no temptations to sin mortally. It surprised him, however, to find that at the end of his course of intricate piety and self-restraint he was so easily at the mercy of childish and unworthy imperfections. His prayers and fasts availed him little, for the suppression of anger at hearing his mother sneeze or at being disturbed in his devotions. It needed an immense effort of his will to master the impulse which urged him to give outlet to such irritation. Images of the outbursts of trivial anger which he had often noted among his masters, their twitching mouths, close-shut lips and flushed cheeks, recurred to his memory, discouraging him for all his practice of humility by the comparison. To merge his life in the common tide of other lives was harder for him than any fasting or prayer and it was his constant failure to do this to his own satisfaction which caused in his soul at last a sensation of spiritual dryness together with a growth of doubts and scruples. His soul traversed a period of desolation in which the sacraments themselves seemed to have turned into dried-up sources. His confession became a channel for the escape of scrupulous and unrepented imperfections. His actual reception of the Eucharist did not bring him the same dissolving moments of virginal self-surrender as did those spiritual communions made by him sometimes at the close of some visit to the Blessed Sacrament. The book which he used for these visits was an old neglected book written by St. Alphonsus Liguori, with fading characters and sere, fox-papered leaves. A faded world of fervent love and virginal responses seemed to be evoked for his soul by the reading of its pages in which the imagery of the canticles was interwoven with the communicant's prayers. An inaudible voice seemed to caress the soul, telling her names and glories, bidding her arise as for espousal and come away, bidding her look forth, a spouse, from a manna and from the mountains of the leopards and the soul seemed to answer with the same inaudible voice, surrendering herself, inter ubera mea comorabitur. This idea of surrender had a perilous attraction for his mind, now that he felt his soul beset once again by the insistent voices of the flesh, which began to murmur to him again during his prayers and meditations. 
It gave him an intense sense of power to know that he could, by a single act of consent, in a moment of thought, undo all that he had done. He seemed to feel a flood slowly advancing towards his naked feet, and to be waiting for the first faint, timid, noiseless wavelet to touch his fevered skin. Then, almost at the instant of that touch, almost at the verge of sinful consent, he found himself standing far away from the flood upon a dry shore, saved by a sudden act of the will or a sudden ejaculation, and, seeing the silver line of the flood far away, and beginning again its slow advance towards his feet, a new thrill of power and satisfaction shook his soul to know that he had not yielded nor undone all. When he had eluded the flood of temptation many times in this way, he grew troubled and wondered whether the grace which he had refused to lose was not being filched from him little by little. The clear certitude of his own immunity grew dim, and to it succeeded a vague fear that his soul had really fallen unawares. It was with difficulty that he won back his old consciousness of his state of grace by telling himself that he had prayed to God at every temptation, and that the grace which he had prayed for must have been given to him inasmuch as God was obliged to give it. The very frequency and violence of temptations showed him at last the truth of what he had heard about the trials of the saints. Frequent and violent temptations were a proof that the citadel of the soul had not fallen, and that the devil raged to make it fall. Often, when he had confessed his doubts and scruples, some momentary inattention at prayer, a movement of trivial anger in his soul, or a subtle willfulness in speech or act, he was bidden by his confessor to name some sin of his past life before absolution was given him. He named it with humility and shame, and repented of it once more. It humiliated and shamed him to think that he would never be freed from it wholly, however holily he might live, or whatever virtues or perfections he might attain. A restless feeling of guilt would always be present with him. He would confess and repent and be absolved, confess and repent again and be absolved again fruitlessly. Perhaps that first hasty confession wrung from him by the fear of hell had not been good. Perhaps, concerned only for his imminent doom, he had not had sincere sorrow for his sin. But the surest sign that his confession had been good, and that he had had sincere sorrow for his sin, was, he knew, the amendment of his life. I have amended my life, have I not? he asked himself. The director stood in the embrasure of the window, his back to the light, leaning an elbow on the brown cross-blind, and, as he spoke and smiled, slowly dangling and looping the cord of the other blind. Stephen stood before him, following for a moment with his eyes the waning of the long summer daylight above the roofs or the slow deft movements of the priestly fingers. The priest's face was in total shadow, but the waning daylight from behind him touched the deeply grooved temples and the curves of the skull. Stephen followed also with his ears the accents and intervals of the priest's voice as he spoke gravely and cordially of indifferent themes, the vacation which had just ended, the colleges of the order abroad, the transference of masters. The grave and cordial voice went on easily with its tale, 
and in the pauses Stephen felt bound to set it on again with respectful questions. He knew that the tale was a prelude, and his mind waited for the sequel. Ever since the message of summons had come for him from the director, his mind had struggled to find the meaning of the message. And during the long, restless time he had sat in the college parlour waiting for the director to come in, his eyes had wandered from one sober picture to another around the walls, and his mind wandered from one guest to another until the meaning of the summons had almost become clear. Then, just as he was wishing that some unforeseen cause might prevent the director from coming, he had heard the handle of the door turning and the swish of a soutane. The director had begun to speak of the Dominican and Franciscan orders and of the friendship between St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure. The capuchin dress, he thought, was rather too... Stephen's face gave back the priest's indulgent smile, and, not being anxious to give an opinion, he made a slight dubitative movement with his lips. "'I believe,' continued the director, "'that there is some talk now among the Capuchins themselves "'of doing away with it and following the example of the other Franciscans.' "'I suppose they would retain it in the cloister,' said Stephen. "'Oh, certainly,' said the director. Uh, "'For the cloister it is all right, but for the street I really think it would be better to do away with it, don't you?' "'It must be troublesome, I imagine.' Of course it is, of course. Just imagine, when I was in Belgium, I used to see them out cycling in all kinds of weather, with this thing up about their knees. It was really ridiculous. Les jupes, they call them in Belgium. The vowel was so modified as to be indistinct. What do they call them? Les jupes. Oh. Stephen smiled again in answer to the smile which he could not see on the priest's shadowed face, its image or spectre only passing rapidly across his mind as the low, discreet accent fell upon his ear. He gazed calmly before him at the waning sky, glad of the cool of the evening and the faint yellow glow which hid the tiny flame kindling upon his cheek. The names of articles of dress worn by women, or of certain soft and delicate stuffs used in their making, brought always to his mind a delicate and sinful perfume. As a boy he had imagined the reins by which horses are driven as slender silken bands, and it shocked him to feel at Stradbrook the greasy leather of harness. It had shocked him, too, when he had felt for the first time beneath his tremulous fingers the brittle texture of a woman's stocking, for, retaining nothing of all he read save that which seemed to him an echo or a prophecy of his own state, it was only amid soft-worded phrases or within rose-soft stuffs that he dared to conceive of the soul or body of a woman moving with tender life. But the phrase on the priest's lips was disingenuous, for he knew that a priest should not speak lightly on that theme. The phrase had been spoken lightly with design, and he felt that his face was being searched by the eyes in the shadow. Whatever he had heard or read of the craft of Jesuits he had put aside, frankly, as not borne out by his own experience. His masters, even when they had not attracted him, had seemed to him always intelligent and serious priests, athletic and high-spirited prefects. 
he thought of them as men who washed their bodies briskly with cold water and wore clean cold linen. During all the years he had lived among them in Clongos and in Belvedere, he had received only two pandies and, though these had been dealt him in the wrong, he knew that he had often escaped punishment. During all those years he had never heard from any of his masters a flippant word. It was they who had taught him Christian doctrine and urged him to live a good life, and, when he had fallen into grievous sin, it was they who had led him back to grace. Their presence had made him diffident of himself when he was a muff in Clongos, and it had made him diffident of himself also, while he had held his equivocal position in Belvedere. A constant sense of this had remained with him up to the last year of his school life. He had never once disobeyed or allowed turbulent companions to seduce him from his habit of quiet obedience. And even when he doubted some statement of a master, he had never presumed to doubt openly. Lately some of their judgments had sounded a little childish in his ears and had made him feel a regret and pity as though he were slowly passing out of an accustomed world and were hearing its language for the last time. One day, when some boys had gathered round a priest under the shed near the chapel, he had heard the priest say, I believe that Lord Macaulay was a man who probably never committed a mortal sin in his life, that is to say, a deliberate mortal sin. Some of the boys had then asked the priest if Victor Hugo were not the greatest French writer. The priest had answered that Victor Hugo had never written half so well when he had turned against the church as he had written when he was a Catholic. "'But there are so many eminent French critics,' said the priest, who consider that even Victor Hugo, great as he certainly was, had not so pure a French style as Louis Villot. The tiny flame which the priest's allusion had kindled upon Stephen's cheek had sunk down again, and his eyes were still fixed calmly on the colourless sky. But an unresting doubt flew hither and thither before his mind. Masked memories passed quickly before him. He recognised scenes and persons, yet he was conscious that he had failed to perceive some vital circumstance in them. He saw himself walking about the grounds, watching the sports in Clongos, and eating Slim Jim out of his cricket cap. Some Jesuits were walking round the cycle-track in the company of ladies. The echoes of certain expressions used in Clongos sounded in remote caves of his mind. His ears were listening to these distant echoes amid the silence of the parlour, when he became aware that the priest was addressing him in a different voice. I sent for you to-day, Stephen, because I wished to speak to you on a very important subject. Yes, sir. Have you ever felt that you had a vocation? Stephen parted his lips to answer yes, and then withheld the word suddenly. The priest waited for the answer, and added, I mean, have you ever felt within yourself, in your soul, a desire to join the order? think. I have sometimes thought of it, said Stephen. The priest let the blind cord fall to one side, and, uniting his hands, leaned his chin gravely upon them, communing with himself. In a college like this, he said at length, there is one boy, or perhaps two or three boys, whom God calls to the religious life. 
such a boy is marked off from his companions by his piety, by the good example he shows to others. He is looked up to by them. He is chosen, perhaps, as prefect by his fellow sodalists. And you, Stephen, have been such a boy in this college, prefect of our blessed lady sodality. Perhaps you are the boy in this college whom God designs to call to himself. A strong note of pride reinforcing the gravity of the priest's voice made Stephen's heart quicken in response. To receive that call, Stephen, said the priest, is the greatest honor that the Almighty God can bestow upon a man. No king or emperor on this earth has the power of the priest of God. No angel or archangel in heaven, no saint, not even the Blessed Virgin herself has the power of a priest of God, the power of the keys, the power to bind and to loose from sin, the power of exorcism, the power to cast out from the creatures of God the evil spirits that have power over them, the power, the authority, to make the great God of heaven come down upon the altar and take the form of bread and wine. What an awful power, Stephen! A flame began to flutter again on Stephen's cheek as he heard in this proud address an echo of his own proud musings. How often had he seen himself as a priest, wielding calmly and humbly the awful power of which angels and saints stood in reverence! His soul had loved to muse in secret on this desire. He had seen himself, a young and silent-mannered priest, entering a confessional swiftly, ascending the altar-steps, incensing, genuflecting, accomplishing the vague acts of the priesthood which pleased him by reason of their semblance of reality and of their distance from it. In that dim life which he had lived through in his musings he had assumed the voices and gestures which he had noted with various priests. He had bent his knee sideways like such a one, he had shaken the thurible only slightly like such a one. His chasuble had swung open like that of such another, as he had turned to the altar again after having blessed the people. And above all it had pleased him to fill the second place in those dim scenes of his imagining. He shrank from the dignity of celebrant, because it displeased him to imagine that all the vague pomp should end in his own person, or that the ritual should assign to him so clear and final an office. He longed for the minor sacred offices, to be vested with the tunicle of subdeacon at high mass, to stand aloof from the altar, forgotten by the people, his shoulders covered with a humeral veil, holding the paten within its folds, or, when the sacrifice had been accomplished, to stand as deacon in a dalmatic of cloth of gold on the step below the celebrant, his hands joined, and his face towards the people, and sing the chant, Ite Missa Est. If ever he had seen himself celebrant, it was as in the pictures of the Mass in his child's mass-book, in a church without worshippers, save for the angel of the sacrifice, at a bare altar, and served by an acolyte scarcely more boyish than himself. In vague sacrificial or sacramental acts alone his will seemed drawn to go forth to encounter reality, and it was partly the absence of an appointed rite which had always constrained him to inaction, whether he had allowed silence to cover his anger or pride, or had suffered only an embrace he longed to give. 
He listened in reverent silence now to the priest's appeal, and through the words he heard even more distinctly a voice bidding him approach, offering him secret knowledge and secret power. He would know then what was the sin of Simon Magus, and what the sin against the Holy Ghost for which there was no forgiveness. He would know obscure things, hidden from others, from those who were conceived and born children of wrath. He would know the sins, the sinful longings and sinful thoughts and sinful acts of others, hearing them murmured into his ears in the confessional under the shame of a darkened chapel by the lips of women and of girls, but rendered immune mysteriously at his ordination by the imposition of hands his soul would pass again uncontaminated to the white peace of the altar. No touch of sin would linger upon the hands with which he would elevate and break the host. No touch of sin would linger on his lips in prayer to make him eat and drink damnation to himself, not discerning the body of the Lord. He would hold his secret knowledge and secret power, being as sinless as the innocent, and he would be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I will offer up my mass to-morrow morning, said the director, that Almighty God may reveal to you his holy will. And let you, Stephen, make a novena to your holy patron saint, the first martyr, who is very powerful with God, that God may enlighten your mind. But you must be quite sure, Stephen, that you have a vocation, because it would be terrible if you found afterwards that you had none. Once a priest, always a priest. Remember, your catechism tells you that the sacrament of holy orders is one of those which can be received only once, because it imprints on the soul an indelible spiritual mark which can never be effaced. It is before you must weigh well, not after. It is a solemn question, Stephen, because on it may depend the salvation of your eternal soul, but we will pray to God together. He held open the heavy hall door and gave his hand, as if already to a companion in the spiritual life. Stephen passed out on to the wide platform above the steps and was conscious of the caress of mild evening air. Towards Findler's church a quartet of young men were striding along with linked arms, swaying their heads and stepping to the agile melody of their leader's concertina. The music passed in an instant, as the first bars of sudden music always did, over the fantastic fabrics of his mind, dissolving them painlessly and noiselessly as a sudden wave dissolves the sand-built turrets of children. Smiling at the trivial air, he raised his eyes to the priest's face and, seeing in it a mirthless reflection of the sunken day, detached his hand slowly, which had acquiesced faintly in that companionship. As he descended the steps, the impression which effaced his troubled self-communion was that of a mirthless mask reflecting a sunken day from the threshold of the college. The shadow, then, of the life of the college passed gravely over his consciousness. It was a grave and ordered and passionless life that awaited him, a life without material cares. He wondered how he would pass the first night in the novitiate, and with what dismay he would wake the first morning in the dormitory. The troubling odour of the long corridors of Klongos came back to him, and he heard the discreet murmur of the burning gas-flames. At once, from every part of his being, unrest began to irradiate. 
A feverish quickening of his pulses followed, and a din of meaningless words drove his reasoned thoughts hither and thither confusedly. His lungs dilated and sank as if he were inhaling a warm, moist, unsustaining air, and he smelt again the warm, moist air which hung in the bath and clongos above the sluggish, turf-coloured water. Some instinct, waking at these memories, stronger than education or piety, quickened within him at every near approach to that life, an instinct subtle and hostile, and armed him against acquiescence. The chill and order of the life repelled him. He saw himself rising in the cold of the morning and filing down with the others to early mass and trying vainly to struggle with his prayers against the fainting sickness of his stomach. He saw himself sitting at dinner with the community of a college. What, then, had become of that deep-rooted shyness of his which had made him loth to eat or drink under a strange roof? What had come of the pride of his spirit which had always made him conceive himself as a being apart in every order? The Reverend Stephen Dedalus, S.J. His name in that new life leaped into characters before his eyes, and to it there followed a mental sensation of an undefined face or color of a face. The color faded and became strong like a changing glow of pallid brick-red. Was it the raw reddish glow he had so often seen on wintry mornings on the shaven gills of the priests? The face was eyeless and sour-favored and devout, shot with pink tinges of suffocated anger. Was it not a mental specter of the face of one of the Jesuits whom some of the boys called Lantern Jaws and others Foxy Campbell? He was passing at that moment before the Jesuit house in Gardiner Street, and wondered vaguely which window would be his if he ever joined the order. Then he wondered at the vagueness of his wonder, at the remoteness of his soul from what he had hitherto imagined her sanctuary, at the frail hold which so many years of order and obedience had of him when once a definite and irrevocable act of his threatened to end for ever, in time and in eternity, his freedom. The voice of the director urging upon him the proud claims of the church and the mystery and power of the priestly office repeated itself idly in his memory. His soul was not there to hear and greet it, and he knew now that the exhortation he had listened to had already fallen into an idle, formal tale. He would never swing the thurible before the tabernacle as priest. His destiny was to be elusive of social or religious orders. The wisdom of the priest's appeal did not touch him to the quick. He was destined to learn his own wisdom apart from others, or to learn the wisdom of others himself wandering among the snares of the world. The snares of the world were its ways of sin. He would fall. He had not yet fallen, but he would fall silently in an instant. Not to fall was too hard, too hard and he felt the silent lapse of his soul, as it would be at some instant to come, falling, falling but not yet fallen, still unfallen but about to fall. He crossed the bridge over the stream of the Tolka, and turned his eyes coldly for an instant towards the faded blue shrine of the Blessed Virgin, which stood foul-wise on a pole in the middle of a ham-shaped encampment of poor cottages. Then, bending to the left, 
he followed the lane which led up to his house. The faint sour stink of rotted cabbages came towards him from the kitchen gardens on the rising ground above the river. He smiled to think that it was this disorder, the misrule and confusion of his father's house and the stagnation of vegetable life, which was to win the day in his soul. Then a short laugh broke from his lips as he thought of that solitary farmhand in the kitchen gardens behind their house, whom they had nicknamed the man with the hat. A second laugh, taking rise from the first after a pause, broke from him involuntarily as he thought of how the man with the hat worked, considering in turn the four points of the sky, and then regretfully plunging his spade in the earth. He pushed open the latchless door of the porch and passed through the naked hallway into the kitchen. A group of his brothers and sisters was sitting round the table. Tea was nearly over, and only the last of the second watered tea remained in the bottoms of the small glass jars and jam-pots which did service for teacups. Discarded crusts and lumps of sugared bread, turned brown by the tea which had been poured over them, lay scattered on the table. Little wells of tea lay here and there on the board, and a knife with a broken ivory handle was stuck through the pith of a ravaged turnover. The sad, quiet, grey-blue glow of the dying day came through the window and the open door, covering over and laying quietly a sudden instinct of remorse in Stephen's heart. All that had been denied them had been freely given to him, the eldest, but the quiet glow of evening showed him in their faces no sign of rancor. He sat near them at the table and asked where his father and mother were. One answered, "'Gone bro, to bro, look bro, at bro, abro, house bro.' Still another removal. A boy named Fallon in Belvedere had often asked him with a silly laugh why they moved so often. A frown of scorn darkened quickly his forehead as he heard again the silly laughter of the questioner. He asked, "'Why are we on the move again, if it's a fair question?' The same sister answered, "'Because bro, the bro, land bro, lord bro, will bro, put bro, us bro, out bro.' The voice of his youngest brother from the farther side of the fireplace began to sing the air oft in the stilly night. One by one the others took up the air until a full choir of voices was singing. They would sing so for hours, melody after melody, glee after glee, till the last pale light died down on the horizon, till the first dark night clouds came forth and night fell. He waited for some moments, listening, before he too took up the air with them. He was listening with pain of spirit to the overtone of weariness behind their fale, fresh, innocent voices. Even before they set out on life's journey, they seemed weary already of the way. He heard the choir of voices in the kitchen echoed and multiplied through an endless reverberation of the choirs of endless generations of children and heard in all the echoes an echo also of the recurring note of weariness and pain. All seemed weary of life even before entering upon it, and he remembered that Newman had heard this note also in the broken lines of Virgil, giving utterance, like the voice of nature herself, to that pain and weariness yet hope of better things 
which has been the experience of her children in every time. End of chapter 4, part 1「from the door of Byron's public-house to the gate of Clontarf Chapel, from the gate of Clontarf Chapel to the door of Byron's public-house, and then back again to the chapel, and then back again to the public-house, he had paced slowly at first, planting his steps scrupulously in the spaces of the patchwork of the footpath, then timing their fall to the fall of verses. A full hour had passed since his father had gone in with Dan Crosby the tutor to find out for him something about the university. For a full hour he had paced up and down, waiting, but he could wait no longer. He set off abruptly for the bull, walking rapidly lest his father's shrill whistle might call him back, and in a few moments he had rounded the curve at the police barrack and was safe. Yes, his mother was hostile to the idea, as he had read from her listless silence. Yet her mistrust pricked him more keenly than his father's pride, and he thought coldly how he had watched the faith which was fading down in his soul, aging and strengthening in her eyes. A dim antagonism gathered force within him, and darkened his mind as a cloud against her disloyalty, and when it passed cloud-like, leaving his mind serene and dutiful towards her again, he was made aware dimly and without regret of a first noiseless sundering of their lives. The university! So he had passed beyond the challenge of the centuries who had stood as guardians of his boyhood and had sought to keep him among them that he might be subject to them and serve their ends. Pride after satisfaction uplifted him like long, slow waves. The end he had been born to serve, yet did not see, had led him to escape by an unseen path and now it beckoned to him once more, and a new adventure was about to be opened to him. It seemed to him that he heard notes of fitful music leaping upwards a tone and downwards a diminished fourth, upwards a tone and downwards a major third, like triple-branching flames leaping fitfully, flame after flame, out of a midnight wood. It was an elfin prelude, endless and formless, and as it grew wilder and faster, the flames leaping out of time, he seemed to hear from under the boughs and grasses wild creatures racing, their feet pattering like rain upon the leaves. Their feet passed in pattering tumult over his mind, the feet of hares and rabbits, the feet of harts and hinds and antelopes, until he heard them no more, and remembered only a proud cadence from Newman, whose feet are as the feet of harts, and underneath the everlasting arms. The pride of that dim image brought back to his mind the dignity of the office he had refused. All through his boyhood he had mused upon that which he had so often thought to be his destiny, and when the moment had come for him to obey the call, he had turned aside, obeying a wayward instinct. Now time lay between. 
The oils of ordination would never anoint his body. He had refused. Why? He turned seaward from the road at Dolly Mount, and as he passed on to the thin wooden bridge, he felt the planks shaking with the tramp of heavily shod feet. A squad of Christian brothers was on its way back from the bull, and had begun to pass, two by two, across the bridge. Soon the whole bridge was trembling and resounding. The uncouth faces passed him two by two, stained yellow or red or livid by the sea, and as he strove to look at them with ease and indifference, a faint stain of personal shame and commiseration rose to his own face. Angry with himself, he tried to hide his face from their eyes by gazing down sideways into the shallow swirling water under the bridge, but he still saw a reflection therein of their top-heavy silk hats, and humble tape-like collars, and loosely hanging clerical clothes. Brother Hickey, Brother Cade, Brother McArdle, Brother Keoff. Their piety would be like their names, like their faces, like their clothes, and it was idle for him to tell himself that their humble and contrite hearts it might be paid a far richer tribute of devotion than his had ever been, a gift tenfold more acceptable than his elaborate adoration. It was idle for him to move himself to be generous towards them, to tell himself that if he ever came to their gates, stripped of his pride, beaten and in beggar's weeds, that they would be generous towards him, loving him as themselves. Idle and embittering finally to argue against his own dispassionate certitude, that the commandment of love bade us not to love our neighbour as ourselves with the same amount and intensity of love, but to love him as ourselves with the same kind of love. He drew forth a phrase from his treasure and spoke it softly to himself. A day of dappled sea-born clouds. The phrase and the day and the scene harmonized in accord. Words. Was it their colours? He allowed them to glow and fade, hue after hue, sunrise gold, the russet and green of apple orchards, azure of waves, the grey-fringed fleece of clouds. No, it was not their colours. It was the poise and balance of the period itself. Did he then love the rhythmic rise and fall of words better than their associations of legend and colour? Or was it that, being as weak of sight as he was shy of mind, he drew less pleasure from the reflection of the glowing sensible world through the prism of a language many-coloured and richly storied, than from the contemplation of an inner world of individual emotions mirrored perfectly in a lucid, supple, periodic prose? He passed from the trembling bridge on to firm land again. At that instant, as it seemed to him, the air was chilled, and looking askance towards the water, he saw a flying squall darkening and crisping suddenly the tide. A faint click at his heart, a faint throb in his throat, told him once more of how his flesh dreaded the cold, infrahuman odour of the sea. Yet he did not strike across the downs on his left, but held straight on along the spine of rocks that pointed against the river's mouth. A veiled sunlight lit up faintly the grey sheet of water where the river was embayed. In the distance along the course of the slow-flowing Liffey, slender masts flecked the sky, and, more distant still, the dim fabric of the city lay prone in haze.
like a scene on some vague arras, old as man's weariness. The image of the seventh city of Christendom was visible to him across the timeless air, no older nor more weary nor less patient of subjection than in the days of the thingmote. Disheartened, he raised his eyes towards the slow-drifting clouds, dappled and seaborne. They were voyaging across the deserts of the sky, a host of nomads on the march, voyaging high over Ireland, westward bound. The Europe they had come from lay out there beyond the Irish Sea, Europe of strange tongues and valleyed and wood-begirt and citadeled and of entrenched and marshalled races. He heard a confused music within him as of memories and names which he was almost conscious of, but could not capture even for an instant. Then the music seemed to recede, to recede, to recede. And from each receding trail of nebulous music there fell always one long-drawn calling note, piercing like a star the dusk of silence, again, again, again. A voice from beyond the world was calling. Hello, Stephanos. Here comes the Daedalus. Oh, eh, give it over, Dwyer, I'm telling you, or I'll give you a stuff in the kisser for yourself. Oh, good man, Towser, duck him. Come along, Daedalus. Bos Stephanomenos, bos Stephaneferos. Duck him, guzzle him now, Towser. Help, help, oh. He recognized their speech collectively before he distinguished their faces. The mere sight of that medley of wet nakedness chilled him to the bone. Their bodies, corpse-white or suffused with a pallid golden light or rawly tanned by the suns, gleamed with the wet of the sea. Their diving stone, poised on its rude supports and rocking under their plunges, and the rough-hewn stones of the sloping breakwater over which they scrambled in their horseplay, gleamed with cold, wet luster. The towels with which they smacked their bodies were heavy with cold sea-water, and drenched with cold brine was their matted hair. He stood still in deference to their calls, and parried their banter with easy words. How characterless they looked! Shuley without his deep unbuttoned collar, Ennis without his scarlet belt with a snaky clasp, and Connolly without his Norfolk coat with the flapless side-pockets. It was a pain to see them, and a sword-like pain to see the signs of adolescence that made repellent their pitiable nakedness. Perhaps they had taken refuge in number and noise from the secret dread in their souls. But he, apart from them and in silence, remembered in what dread he stood of the mystery of his own body. Stephanos Dedlos! Bos Stephanomenos! Bos Stephaneferos! Their banter was not new to him, and now it flattered his mild, proud sovereignty. Now, as never before, his strange name seemed to him a prophecy. So timeless seemed the grey warm air, so fluid and impersonal his own mood, that all ages were as one to him. A moment before the ghost of the ancient kingdom of the Danes had looked forth through the vesture of the haze-wrapped city. Now, at the name of the fabulous artificer, he seemed to hear the noise of dim waves and to see a winged form flying above the waves and slowly climbing the air. What did it mean? 
Was it a quaint device opening a page of some medieval book of prophecies and symbols, a hawk-like man flying sunward above the sea, a prophecy of the end he had been born to serve and had been following through the mists of childhood and boyhood, a symbol of the artist forging anew in his workshop out of the sluggish matter of the earth, a new, soaring, impalpable, imperishable being? His heart trembled. His breath came faster, and a wild spirit passed over his limbs as though he were soaring sunward. His heart trembled in an ecstasy of fear, and his soul was in flight. His soul was soaring in an air beyond the world, and the body he knew was purified in a breath, and delivered of incertitude, and made radiant and commingled with the element of the spirit. An ecstasy of flight made radiant his eyes, and wild his breath, and tremulous and wild and radiant his wind-swept limbs. One, two, look out! Oh, cripes, I'm drowned! One, two, three, and away! Me next, me next! One, ook, Stephaneforos! His throat ached with a desire to cry aloud, the cry of a hawk or eagle on high, to cry piercingly of his deliverance to the winds. This was the call of life to his soul, not the dull, gross voice of the world of duties and despair, not the inhuman voice that had called him to the pale service of the altar. An instant of wild flight had delivered him, and the cry of triumph which his lips withheld cleft his brain. Stephaneforos! What were they now but cerements shaken from the body of death, the fear he had walked in night and day, the incertitude that had ringed him round, the shame that had abased him within and without, cerements, the linens of the grave? His soul had arisen from the grave of boyhood, spurning her grave-clothes. Yes, 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 he would create proudly out of the freedom and power of his soul, as the great artificer whose name he bore, a living thing, new and soaring and beautiful, impalpable, imperishable. He started up nervously from the stone-block, for he could no longer quench the flame in his blood. He felt his cheeks aflame and his throat throbbing with song. There was a lust of wandering in his feet that burned to set out for the ends of the earth. On, on, his heart seemed to cry. Evening would deepen above the sea, night fall upon the plains, dawn glimmer before the wanderer and show him strange fields and hills and faces. Where? He looked northward towards Howth. The sea had fallen below the line of sea-rack on the shallow side of the breakwater, and already the tide was running out fast along the foreshore. Already one long oval bank of sand lay warm and dry amid the wavelets. Here and there warm isles of sand gleamed above the shallow tide, and about the isles and around the long bank and amid the shallow currents of the beach were light-clad, gay-clad figures, wading and delving. In a few moments he was barefoot, his stockings folded in his pockets and his canvas shoes dangling by their knotted laces over his shoulders, and, picking a pointed salt-eaten stick out of the jetsam among the rocks, he clambered down the slope of the breakwater. There was a long rivulet in the sand, and, as he waded slowly up its course, 
he wondered at the endless drift of seaweed. Emerald and black and russet and olive, it moved beneath the current, swaying and turning. The water of the rivulet was dark with endless drift and mirrored the high-drifting clouds. The clouds were drifting above him silently, and silently the sea-tangle was drifting below him, and the grey warm air was still, and a new wild life was singing in his veins. Where was his boyhood now? Where was the soul that had hung back from her destiny to brood alone upon the shame of her wounds and in her house of squalor and subterfuge to queen it in faded cerements and in wreaths that withered at the touch? Or where was he? He was alone. He was unheeded, happy and near to the wild heart of life. He was alone and young and willful and wild-hearted, alone amid a waste of wild air and brackish waters and the sea-harvest of shells and tangle and veiled grey sunlight and gay-clad light-clad figures of children and girls and voices childish and girlish in the air. A girl stood before him in midstream, alone and still, gazing out to sea. She seemed like one whom magic had changed into the likeness of a strange and beautiful sea-bird. Her long, slender, bare legs were delicate as a crane's, and pure, save where an emerald trail of seaweed had fashioned itself as a sign upon the flesh. Her thighs, fuller and soft-hued as ivory, were bared almost to the hips where the white fringes of her drawers were like featherings of soft white down. Her slate-blue skirts were kilted boldly about her waist and dovetailed behind her. Her bosom was as a bird's, soft and slight, slight and soft as the breast of some dark-plumaged dove. But her long fair hair was girlish, and girlish, and touched with the wonder of mortal beauty, her face. She was alone and still, gazing out to sea, and when she felt his presence and the worship of his eyes, her eyes turned to him in quiet sufferance of his gaze, without shame or wantonness. Long, long she suffered his gaze, and then quietly withdrew her eyes from his and bent them towards the stream, gently stirring the water with her foot hither and thither. The first faint noise of gently moving water broke the silence, low and faint and whispering, faint as the bells of sleep. Hither and thither, hither and thither, and a faint flame trembled on her cheek. Heavenly God! cried Stephen's soul in an outburst of profane joy. He turned away from her suddenly and set off across the strand. His cheeks were aflame, his body was aglow, his limbs were trembling. On and on and on and on he strode, far out over the sands, singing wildly to the sea, crying to greet the advent of the life that had cried to him. Her image had passed into his soul for ever, and no word had broken the holy silence of his ecstasy. Her eyes had called him, and his soul had leaped at the call. To live, to err, to fall, to triumph, to recreate life out of life. A wild angel had appeared to him, the angel of mortal youth and beauty, an envoy from the fair courts of life 
to throw open before him in an instant of ecstasy the gates of all the ways of error and glory, on and on and on and on. He halted suddenly and heard his heart in the silence. How far had he walked? What hour was it? There was no human figure near him, nor any sound borne to him over the air. But the tide was near the turn, and already the day was on the wane. He turned landward, and ran towards the shore, and, running up the sloping beach, reckless of the sharp shingle, found a sandy nook amid a ring of tufted sand-knolls, and lay down there, that the peace and silence of the evening might still the riot of his blood. He felt above him the vast indifferent dome and the calm processes of the heavenly bodies, and the earth beneath him, the earth that had borne him, had taken him to her breast. He closed his eyes in the languor of sleep. His eyelids trembled as if they felt the vast cyclic movement of the earth and her watchers, trembled as if they felt the strange light of some new world. His soul was swooning into some new world, fantastic, dim, uncertain as under sea, traversed by cloudy shapes and beings. A world, a glimmer, or a flower? Glimmering and trembling, trembling and unfolding, a breaking light, an opening flower, it spread in endless succession to itself, breaking in full crimson and unfolding and fading to palest rose, leaf by leaf, and wave of light by wave of light, flooding all the heavens with its soft flushes, every flush deeper than other. Evening had fallen when he woke, and the sand and arid grasses of his bed glowed no longer. He rose slowly and, recalling the rapture of his sleep, sighed at its joy. He climbed to the crest of the sand-hill and gazed about him. Evening had fallen. A rim of the young moon cleft the pale waste of sky like the rim of a silver hoop embedded in grey sand, and the tide was flowing in fast to the land with a low whisper of her waves, islanding a few last figures in distant pools. End of chapter 4《Chapter Five, Part One of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Bobby. A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Chapter Five, Part One. He drained his third cup of watery tea to the dregs, and set to chewing the crusts of fried bread that were scattered near him, staring into the dark pool of the jar. The yellow dripping had been scooped out like a bog-hole, and the pool under it brought back to his memory the dark, turf-coloured water of the bath in Klongos. The box of pawn-tickets at his elbow had just been rifled, and he took up idly, one after another in his greasy fingers, the blue and white dockets, scrawled and sanded and creased, and bearing the name of the pledger as Daly or McAvoy. One pair buskins, one D coat, 
three articles and white, one man's pants. Then he put them aside and gazed thoughtfully at the lid of the box, speckled with louse marks, and asked vaguely, How much is the clock fast now? His mother straightened the battered alarm clock that was lying on its side in the middle of the kitchen mantelpiece, until its dial showed a quarter to twelve, and then laid it once more on its side. "'An hour and twenty-five minutes,' she said. "'The right time now is twenty past ten. The dear knows you might try to be in time for your lectures.' "'Fill out the place for me to wash,' said Stephen. "'Katie, fill out the place for Stephen to wash.' Booty, fill out the place for Stephen to wash. I can't. I'm going for blue. Fill it out, you, Maggie. When the enameled basin had been fitted into the well of the sink and the old washing-glove flung on the side of it, he allowed his mother to scrub his neck and root into the folds of his ears and into the interstices at the wings of his nose. Well, it's a poor case, she said, when a university student is so dirty that his mother has to wash him. But it gives you pleasure, said Stephen calmly. An ear-splitting whistle was heard from upstairs, and his mother thrust a damp overall into his hands, saying, Dry yourself and hurry out for the love of goodness. A second shrill whistle, prolonged angrily, brought one of the girls to the foot of the staircase. Yes, father? Is your lazy bitch of a brother gone out yet? Yes, father. Sure? Yes, father. The girl came back, making signs to him to be quick and go out quietly by the back. Stephen laughed and said, He has a curious idea of genders if he thinks a bitch is masculine. Oh, it's a scandalous shame for you, Stephen, said his mother, and you'll live to rue the day you set your foot in that place. I know how it has changed you. Good morning, everybody, said Stephen smiling and kissing the tips of his fingers in adieu. The lane behind the terrace was waterlogged, and as he went down it slowly, choosing his steps amid heaps of wet rubbish, he heard a mad nun screeching in the nun's madhouse beyond the wall. "'Jesus! Oh, Jesus! Jesus!' He shook the sound out of his ears by an angry toss of his head and hurried on, stumbling through the mouldering offal, his heart already bitten by an ache of loathing and bitterness. His father's whistle, his mother's mutterings, the screech of an unseen maniac were to him now so many voices offending and threatening to humble the pride of his youth. He drove their echoes even out of his heart with an execration, but as he walked down the avenue and felt the grey morning light falling about him through the dripping trees and smelt the strange wild smell of the wet leaves and bark, his soul was loosed of her miseries. The rain-laden trees of the avenue evoked in him, as always, memories of the girls and women in the plays of Gerhard Hauptmann, and the memory of their pale sorrows and the fragrance falling from the wet branches mingled in a mood of quiet joy. His morning walk across the city had begun, and he foreknew that as he passed the slob-lands of Fairview he would think of the cloistral, silver-veined prose of Newman, that as he walked along the North Strand Road, glancing idly at the windows of the provision shops, he would recall the dark humour of Guido Cavalcanti and smile, 
that as he went by Baird's stone-cutting works in Talbot Place, the spirit of Ibsen would blow through him like a keen wind, a spirit of wayward boyish beauty, and that passing a grimy marine-dealer's shop beyond the Liffey, he would repeat the song by Ben Jonson which begins, I was not wearier where I lay. His mind, when wearied of its search for the essence of beauty amid the spectral words of Aristotle or Aquinas, turned often for its pleasure to the dainty songs of the Elizabethans. His mind, in the vesture of a doubting monk, stood often in shadow under the windows of that age, to hear the grave and mocking music of the lutenists, or the frank laughter of wesketeers, until a laugh too low, a phrase, tarnished by time, of chambering and false honour, stung his monkish pride, and drove him on from his lurking-place. The lore which he was believed to pass his days brooding upon, so that it had wrapped him from the companionships of youth, was only a garner of slender sentences from Aristotle's poetics and psychology, and a synopsis philosophiae scholastice admentum divi tomei. His thinking was a dusk of doubt and self-mistrust, lit up at moments by the lightnings of intuition, but lightnings of so clear a splendour that in those moments the world perished about his feet as if it had been fire-consumed. And thereafter his tongue grew heavy, and he met the eyes of others with unanswering eyes, for he felt that the spirit of beauty had folded him round like a mantle, and that in reverie at least he had been acquainted with nobility. But when this brief pride of silence upheld him no longer, he was glad to find himself still in the midst of common lives, passing on his way amid the squalor and noise and sloth of the city, fearlessly and with a light heart. Near the hoardings on the canal he met the consumptive man with the doll's face and the brimless hat, coming towards him down the slope of the bridge with little steps, tightly buttoned into his chocolate overcoat, and holding his furled umbrella a span or two from him like a divining rod. It must be eleven, he thought, and peered into a dairy to see the time. The clock in the dairy told him that it was five minutes to five, but, as he turned away, he heard a clock somewhere near him, but unseen, beating eleven strokes in swift precision. He laughed as he heard it, for it made him think of McCann, and he saw him a squat figure in a shooting jacket and breeches, and with a fair goatee, standing in the wind at Hopkins' corner, and heard him say, Daedalus, you're an antisocial being, wrapped up in yourself. I'm not. I'm a Democrat, and I'll work and act for social liberty and equality among all classes and sexes in the United States of the Europe of the future. Eleven. And then he was late for that lecture, too. What day of the week was it? He stopped at a newsagent's to read the headline of a placard. Thursday. Ten to eleven, English. Eleven to twelve, French. Twelve to one, Physics. He fancied to himself the English lecture, and felt, even at that distance, restless and helpless. He saw the heads of his classmates meekly bent as they wrote in their notebooks the points they were bidden to note, nominal definitions, essential definitions, and examples or dates of birth or death, chief works, a favourable and an unfavourable criticism side by side. 
His own head was unbent, for his thoughts wandered abroad, and whether he looked around the little class of students or out of the window across the desolate gardens of the green, an odour assailed him of cheerless cellar-damp and decay. Another head than his, right before him in the first benches, was poised squarely above its bending fellows like the head of a priest appealing without humility to the tabernacle for the humble worshippers about him. Why was it that when he thought of Cranley he could never raise before his mind the entire image of his body, but only the image of the head and face? Even now, against the grey curtain of the morning, he saw it before him like the phantom of a dream, the face of a severed head or death-mask, crowned on the brows by its stiff, black, upright hair, as by an iron crown. It was a priest-like face, priest-like in its pallor, in the wide-winged nose, in the shadowings below the eyes and along the jaws, priest-like in the lips that were long and bloodless and faintly smiling. And Stephen, remembering swiftly how he had told Cranley of all the tumults and unrest and longings in his soul, day after day and night by night, only to be answered by his friend's listening silence, would have told himself that it was the face of a guilty priest who heard confessions of those whom he had not power to absolve, but that he felt again in memory the gaze of its dark, womanish eyes. Through this image he had a glimpse of a strange, dark cavern of speculation, but at once turned away from it, feeling that it was not yet the hour to enter it. But the nightshade of his friend's listlessness seemed to be diffusing in the air around him a tenuous and deadly exhalation, and he found himself glancing from one casual word to another on his right or left in stolid wonder that they had been so silently emptied of instantaneous sense, until every mean shop-legend bound his mind like the words of a spell, and his soul shriveled up, sighing with age as he walked on in a lane among heaps of dead language. His own consciousness of language was ebbing from his brain and trickling into the very words themselves, which set to band and disband themselves in wayward rhythms. The ivy winds upon the wall, and winds and twines upon the wall, the ivy winds upon the wall, the yellow ivy on the wall, ivy, ivy, up the wall. Did any one ever hear such drivel, Lord Almighty? Who ever heard of ivy whining on a wall? Yellow ivy, that was all right. Yellow ivory also. And what about ivory ivy? The word now shone in his brain, clearer and brighter than any ivory sawn from the mottled tusks of elephants. Ivory, ivoire, avorio, ebur. One of the first examples that he had learnt in Latin had run, India mitit ebur and he recalled the shrewd northern face of the rector who had taught him to construe the metamorphoses of Ovid in a courtly English, made whimsical by the mention of porkers and potsherds and chines of bacon. He had learnt what little he knew of the laws of Latin verse from a ragged book written by a Portuguese priest. Contrahit orator, variant in carmine vates. The crises and victories and secessions in Roman history were handed on to him in the trite words in tanto discrimine, and he had tried to peer into the social life of the city of cities through the words implere olam denariorum, 
which the rector had rendered sonorously as the filling of a pot with denaries. The pages of his time-worn Horace never felt cold to the touch, even when his own fingers were cold. They were human pages, and fifty years before they had been turned by the human fingers of John Duncan Inverarity and by his brother William Malcolm Inverarity. Yes, those were noble names on the dusky fly-leaf, and, even for so poor a Latinist as he, the dusky verses were as fragrant as though they had lain all those years in myrtle and lavender and vervain. But yet it wounded him to think that he would never be but a shy guest at the feast of the world's culture, and that the monkish learning, in terms of which he was striving to forge out an aesthetic philosophy, was held no higher by the age he lived in than the subtle and curious jargons of heraldry and falconry. The grey block of Trinity on his left, set heavily in the city's ignorance like a great dull stone set in a cumbrous ring, pulled his mind downward. And while he was striving this way and that to free his feet from the fetters of the reformed conscience, he came upon the droll statue of the national poet of Ireland. He looked at it without anger, for, though sloth of the body and of the soul crept over it like unseen vermin, over the shuffling feet and up the folds of the cloak and around the servile head it seemed humbly conscious of its indignity. It was a fur-bolg in the borrowed cloak of a Milesian, and he thought of his friend Davin, the peasant student. It was a jesting name between them, but the young peasant bore with it lightly, saying, "'Go on, Stevie. I have a hard head. You tell me. Call me what you will.' The homely version of his Christian name on the lips of his friend had touched Stephen pleasantly when first heard, for he was as formal in speech with others as they were with him. Often, as he sat in Davin's rooms in Grantham Street, wondering at his friend's well-made boots that flanked the wall pair by pair, and repeating for his friend's simple ear the verses and cadences of others which were the veils of his own longing and dejection, the rude furbolg mind of his listener had drawn his mind towards it and flung it back again, drawing it by a quiet, inbred courtesy of attention, or by a quaint turn of old English speech, or by the force of its delight in rude bodily skill, for Davin had sat at the feet of Michael Cusack the Gale, repelling swiftly and suddenly by a grossness of intelligence, or by a bluntness of feeling, or by a dull stare of terror in the eyes, the terror of soul of a starving Irish village in which the curfew was still a nightly fear. Side by side with his memory of the deeds of prowess of his uncle Matt Davin, the athlete, the young peasant worshipped the sorrowful legend of Ireland. The gossip of his fellow-students, which strove to render the flat life of the college significant at any cost, loved to think of him as a rude Fenian. His nurse had taught him Irish, and shaped his rude imagination by the broken lights of Irish myth. He stood towards this myth, upon which no individual mind had ever drawn out a line of beauty, and to its unwieldy tales that divided themselves as they moved down the cycles in the same attitude as towards the Roman Catholic religion, the attitude of a dull-witted, loyal serf. Whatsoever of thought or of feeling came to him from England or by way of English culture, his mind stood armed against in obedience to a password, and of the world that lay beyond England he knew only the foreign legion of France in which he spoke of serving. 
Coupling this ambition with the young man's humour, Stephen had often called him one of the tame geese, and there was even a point of irritation in the name pointed against that very reluctance of speech and deed in his friend, which seemed so often to stand between Stephen's mind, eager of speculation, and the hidden ways of Irish life. One night the young peasant, his spirit stung by the violent or luxurious language in which Stephen escaped from the cold silence of intellectual revolt, had called up before Stephen's mind a strange vision. The two were walking slowly towards Davin's rooms through the dark narrow streets of the poorer Jews. "'A thing happened to myself, Stevie, last autumn, coming on winter, and I never told it to a living soul, and you are the first person now I ever told it to. I disremember if it was October or November. It was October, because it was before I came up here to join the matriculation class.' Stephen had turned his smiling eyes towards his friend's face, flattered by his confidence and won over to sympathy by the speaker's simple accent. "'I was away all that day from my own place over in Buttevant. I don't know if you know where that is. And a hurling match between the Croke's own boys and the fearless Thurls, and by God, Stevie, that was the hard fight. My first cousin, Fonzie Davin, was stripped to his buff that day, minding cool for the limericks, but he was up with the forwards half the time and shouting like mad. I never will forget that day. One of the croaks made a woeful wipe at him one time with his cannon, and I declare to God he was within an aim's ace of getting it at the side of the temple. Oh, honest to God, if the crook of it caught him that time, he was done for. I am glad he escaped, Stephen had said with a laugh, but surely that's not the strange thing that happened to you. Well, I suppose that doesn't interest you, but leastways there was such noise after the match that I missed the train home, and I couldn't get any kind of yoke to give me a lift, for, as luck would have it, there was a mass meeting that same day over in Castle Townrush, and all the cars in the country were there. So there was nothing for it only to stay the night or to foot it out. Well, I started to walk, and on I went, and it was coming on night when I got to the Balahura Hills. That's better than ten miles from Kilmallock, and there's a long, lonely road after that. You wouldn't see the sign of a Christian house along that road, or hear a sound. It was pitch dark almost. Once or twice I stopped by the way under a bush to redden my pipe, and only for the dew was thick I'd have stretched out there and slept. At last, after a bend of the road, I spied a little cottage with a light in the window. I went up and knocked at the door. A voice asked who was there, and I answered I was over at the match in Buttevant, and was walking back, and that I'd be thankful for a glass of water. After a while a young woman opened the door and brought me out a big mug of milk. She was half undressed, as if she was going to bed when I knocked, and she had her hair hanging. And I thought by her figure, and by something in the look of her eyes, that she must be carrying a child. She kept me in talk a long while at the door, and I thought it strange, because her breast and her shoulders were bare. She asked me was I tired, and would I like to stop the night there. She said she was all alone in the house, and that her husband had gone that morning to Queenstown with his sister to see her off. And all the time she was talking, Stevie, she had her eyes fixed on my face, and she stood so close to me I could hear her breathing. When I handed her back the mug at last, she took my hand to draw me in over the threshold and said, "'Come in and stay the night here. You've got no call to be frightened. There's no one in it but ourselves.' 
I didn't go in, Stevie. I thanked her and went on my way again, all in a fever. At the first bend of the road I looked back, and she was standing at the door. The last words of Davin's story sang in his memory, and the figure of the woman in the story stood forth, reflected in other figures of the peasant women whom he had seen standing in the doorways at Clane as the college cars drove by, as a type of her race and his own, a bat-like soul waking to the consciousness of itself in darkness and secrecy and loneliness, and, through the eyes and voice and gesture of a woman without guile, calling the stranger to her bed. A hand was laid on his arm, and a young voice cried, "'Ah, gentlemen, your own girl, sir! The first Hansel to-day, gentlemen, buy that lovely bunch, will you, gentlemen?' The blue flowers which she lifted towards him, and her young blue eyes seemed to him at that instant images of guilelessness, and he halted till the image had vanished, and he saw only her ragged dress and damp coarse hair and hoydenish face. "'Do, gentlemen, don't forget your own girl, sir. I have no money, said Stephen. Buy them lovely ones, will you, sir? Only a penny. Did you hear what I said? asked Stephen, bending towards her. I told you I had no money. I tell you again now. Well, sure, you will some day, sir, please God, the girl answered after an instant. Possibly, said Stephen, but I don't think it likely. He left her quickly, fearing that her intimacy might turn into jibing and wishing to be out of the way before she offered her ware to another, a tourist from England or a student of Trinity. Grafton Street, along which he walked, prolonged that moment of discouraged poverty. In the roadway at the head of the street a slab was set to the memory of Wolf Tone, and he remembered having been present with his father at its laying. He remembered with bitterness that scene of tawdry tribute. There were four French delegates in a break, and one, a plump, smiling young man, held, wedged on a stick, a card on which were printed the words, Vive l'Irlande! But the trees in Stephen's Green were fragrant of rain, and the rain-sodden earth gave forth its mortal odour, a faint incense rising upward through the mould from many hearts. The soul of the gallant venal city which his elders had told him of had shrunk with time to a faint mortal odour rising from the earth, and he knew that in a moment when he entered the sombre college he would be conscious of a corruption other than that of Buck Egan and Burnchapel Whaley. It was too late to go upstairs to the French class. He crossed the hall and took the corridor to the left which led to the physics theatre. The corridor was dark and silent, but not unwatchful. Why did he feel that it was not unwatchful? Was it because he had heard that in Buck Whaley's time there was a secret staircase there? Or was the Jesuit house extraterritorial, and was he walking among aliens? The Ireland of Tone and of Parnell seemed to have receded in space. He opened the door of the theatre and halted in the chilly grey light that struggled through the dusty windows. A figure was crouching before the large grate, and by its leanness and greyness he knew that it was the Dean of Studies lighting the fire. Stephen closed the door quietly and approached the fireplace. "'Good morning, sir. Can I help you?' The priest looked up quickly and said, "'One moment now, Mr. Dedalus, and you will see. There is an art in lighting a fire. 
We have the liberal arts and we have the useful arts. This is one of the useful arts. I will try to learn it, said Stephen. Not too much coal, said the dean, working briskly at his task. That is one of the secrets. He produced four candle-butts from the side-pockets of his soutane and placed them deftly among the coals and twisted papers. Stephen watched him in silence. Kneeling thus on the flagstone to kindle the fire, and busied with the disposition of his wisps of paper and candle-butts, he seemed more than ever a humble server making ready the place of sacrifice in an empty temple, a Levite of the Lord. Like a Levite's robe of plain linen, the faded-worn soutane draped the kneeling figure of one whom the canonicals or the bell-bordered ephod would irk and trouble. His very body had waxed old in lowly service of the Lord, in tending the fire upon the altar, in bearing tidings secretly, in waiting upon worldlings, in striking swiftly when bidden, and yet had remained ungraced by aught of saintly or of prelatic beauty. Nay, his very soul had waxed old at that service without growing towards light and beauty or spreading abroad a sweet odour of her sanctity. A mortified will no more responsive to the thrill of its obedience than was to the thrill of love or combat his ageing body, spare and sinewy, grayed with a silver-pointed down. The dean rested back on his hunkers and watched the sticks catch. Stephen, to fill the silence, said, I am sure I could not light a fire. You are an artist, are you not, Mr. Dedalus? said the dean, glancing up and blinking his pale eyes. The object of the artist is the creation of the beautiful. What the beautiful is, is another question. He rubbed his hands slowly and dryly over the difficulty. Can you solve that question now? he asked. Aquinas, answered Stephen, says pulcra sunt quae visa placent. This fire before us, said the dean, will be pleasing to the eye. Will it therefore be beautiful? In so far as it is apprehended by the sight, which I suppose means here aesthetic intellection, it will be beautiful. But Aquinas also says, Bonum est in quod tendit appetitus. In so far as it satisfies the animal craving for warmth, fire is a good. In hell, however, it is an evil. Quite so, said the dean. You have certainly hit the nail on the head. He rose nimbly and went towards the door, set it ajar, and said, A draught is said to be a help in these matters. As he came back to the hearth, limping slightly but with a brisk step, Stephen saw the silent soul of a Jesuit look out at him from the pale, loveless eyes. Like Ignatius he was lame, but in his eyes burned no spark of Ignatius' enthusiasm. Even the legendary craft of the company, a craft subtler and more secret than its fabled books of secret subtled wisdom, had not fired his soul with the energy of apostleship. It seemed as if he used the shifts and lore and cunning of the world, as bidden to do, for the greater glory of God, without joy in their handling, or hatred of that in them which was evil, but turning them, with a firm gesture of obedience, back upon themselves. And for all this silent service it seemed as if he loved not at all the master, and little, if at all, the ends he served. Similiter atque senis abaculus he was, 
as the founder would have had him, like a staff in an old man's hand, to be left in a corner, to be leaned on in the road at nightfall or in stress of weather, to lie with a lady's nosegay on a garden seat, to be raised in menace. The dean returned to the hearth and began to stroke his chin. "'When may we expect to have something from you on the aesthetic question?' he asked. "'From me?' said Stephen in astonishment. "'I stumble on an idea once a fortnight, if I'm lucky.' "'These questions are very profound, Mr. Dedalus,' said the dean. "'It is like looking down from the cliffs of Moher into the depths. "'Many go down into the depths and never come up. "'Only the trained diver can go down into those depths "'and explore them and come to the surface again.' "'If you mean speculation, sir,' said Stephen, I also am sure that there is no such thing as free thinking inasmuch as all thinking must be bound by its own laws. Ah! For my purpose, I can work on at present by the light of one or two ideas of Aristotle and Aquinas. I see. I quite see your point. I need them only for my own use and guidance until I have done something for myself by their light. If the lamp smokes or smells, I shall try to trim it. If it does not give light enough, I shall sell it and buy another. Epictetus also had a lamp, said the dean, which was sold for a fancy price after his death. It was the lamp he wrote his philosophical dissertations by. Uh, you know Epictetus. An old gentleman, said Stephen coarsely, who said that the soul is very like a bucketful of water. He tells us in his homely way, the dean went on, that he put an iron lamp before a statue of one of the gods, and that a thief stole the lamp. What did the philosopher do? He reflected that it was in the character of a thief to steal, and determined to buy an earthen lamp next day instead of the iron lamp. A smell of molten tallow came up from the dean's candle-butts and fused itself in Stephen's consciousness with the jingle of the words— bucket and lamp and lamp and bucket. The priest's voice, too, had a hard, jingling tone. Stephen's mind, halted by instinct, checked by the strange tone and the imagery, and by the priest's face, which seemed like an unlit lamp or a reflector hung in a false focus. What lay behind it or within it? A dull torpor of the soul, or the dullness of the thundercloud, charged with intellection and capable of the gloom of God? I meant a different kind of lamp, sir, said Stephen. Undoubtedly, said the dean. One difficulty, said Stephen, in aesthetic discussion is to know whether words are being used according to the literary tradition or according to the tradition of the marketplace. I remember a sentence of Newman's, in which he says of the Blessed Virgin that she was detained in the full company of the saints. The use of the word in the marketplace is quite different. I hope I am not detaining you. Not in the least, said the dean politely. No, no, said Stephen, smiling. I mean... Yes, yes, I see, said the dean quickly. I quite catch the point. Detain. He thrust forward his under jaw and uttered a dry, short cough. "'To return to the lamp,' he said, "'the feeding of it is also a nice problem. You must choose the pure oil, and you must be careful when you pour it in not to overflow it, not to pour in more than the funnel can hold.' "'What funnel?' asked Stephen. 
the funnel through which you pour the oil into your lamp. That, said Stephen, is that called a funnel? Is it not a tundish? What is a tundish? That, the, the funnel. Is that called a tundish in Ireland? asked the dean. I never heard the word in my life. It is called a tundish in Lower Drumcondra, said Stephen, laughing, where they speak the best English. A tundish, said the dean reflectively. That is a most interesting word. I must look that word up. Upon my word I must. His courtesy of manner rang a little false, and Stephen looked at the English convert with the same eyes as the elder brother in the parable may have turned on the prodigal. A humble follower in the wake of clamorous conversions, a poor Englishman in Ireland, he seemed to have entered on the stage of Jesuit history when that strange play of intrigue and suffering and envy and struggle and indignity had been all but given through, a late comer, a tardy spirit. From what had he set out? Perhaps he had been born and bred among serious dissenters, seeing salvation in Jesus only and abhorring the vain pomps of the establishment. Had he felt the need of an implicit faith amid the welter of sectarianism and the jargon of its turbulent schisms, six principal men, peculiar people, seed and snake Baptists, supralapsarian dogmatists? Had he found the true church all of a sudden in winding up to the end like a reel of cotton some fine-spun line of reasoning upon insufflation or the imposition of hands or the procession of the Holy Ghost? Or had Lord Christ touched him and bidden him follow, like the disciple who had sat at the receipt of custom, as he sat by the door of some zinc-roofed chapel, yawning and telling over his church pence? The dean repeated the word yet again. Tundish. Well, now, that is interesting. The question you asked me a moment ago seems to me more interesting. What is that beauty which the artist struggles to express from lumps of earth? said Stephen coldly. The little words seemed to have turned a rapier point of his sensitiveness against this courteous and vigilant foe. He felt with a smart of dejection that the man to whom he was speaking was a countryman of Ben Jonson. He thought, the language in which we are speaking is his before it is mine. How different are the words home, Christ, ale, master, on his lips and on mine. I cannot speak or write these words without unrest of spirit. His language, so familiar and so foreign, will always be for me an acquired speech. I have not made or accepted its words. My voice holds them at bay. My soul frets in the shadow of his language. And to distinguish between the beautiful and the sublime, the dean added, to distinguish between moral beauty and material beauty, and to inquire what kind of beauty is proper to each of the various arts. There are some interesting points we might take up. Stephen, disheartened suddenly by the dean's firm, dry tone, was silent. The dean also was silent, and through the silence a distant noise of many boots and confused voices came up the staircase. In pursuing these speculations, said the dean conclusively, there is, however, the danger of perishing of inanition. First you must take your degree, set that before you as your first aim. Then, little by little, you will see your way. I mean in every sense, your way in life and in thinking. 
It may be uphill pedalling at first. Take Mr. Moonan. He was a long time before he got to the top, but he got there. I may not have his talent, said Stephen quietly. You never know, said the dean brightly. We never can say what is in us. I most certainly should not be despondent. Per aspera ad astra. He left the hearth quickly and went towards the landing to oversee the arrival of the first arts class. Leaning against the fireplace, Stephen heard him greet briskly and impartially every student of the class and could almost see the frank smiles of the coarser students. A desolating pity began to fall like a dew upon his easily embittered heart for this faithful servingman of the knightly Loyola, for this half-brother of the clergy, more venal than they in speech, more steadfast of soul than they, one whom he would never call his ghostly father. And he thought how this man and his companions had earned the name of worldlings at the hands not of the unworldly only, but of the worldly also, for having pleaded, during all their history, at the bar of God's justice for the souls of the lax and the lukewarm and the prudent. The entry of the professor was signalled by a few rounds of Kentish fire from the heavy boots of those students who sat on the highest tier of the gloomy theatre under the grey cobwebbed windows. The calling of the roll began, and the responses to the names were given out in all tones until the name of Peter Byrne was reached. Here. A deep bass note in response came from the upper tier, followed by coughs of protest along the other benches. The professor paused in his reading and called the next name. Cranley? No answer. Mr. Cranley? A smile flew across Stephen's face as he thought of his friend's studies. Try Leopardstown, said a voice from the bench behind. Stephen glanced up quickly, but Moynihan's snoutish face, outlined on the grey light, was impassive. A formula was given out. Amid the rustling of the notebooks, Stephen turned back again and said, "'Give me some paper, for God's sake!' "'Are you as bad as that?' asked Moynihan, with a broad grin. He tore a sheet from his scribbler and passed it down, whispering, "'In case of necessity, any layman or woman can do it.' The formula which he wrote obediently on the sheet of paper, the coiling and uncoiling calculations of the professor, the spectre-like symbols of force and velocity fascinated and jaded Stephen's mind. He had heard some say that the old professor was an atheist Freemason. Oh, the grey, dull day! It seemed a limbo of painless, patient consciousness through which souls of mathematicians might wander, projecting long, slender fabrics from plane to plane of ever-rarer and paler twilight, radiating swift eddies to the last verges of a universe ever vaster, farther, and more impalpable. So we must distinguish between elliptical and ellipsoidal. Perhaps some of you gentlemen may be familiar with the works of Mr. W. S. Gilbert. In one of his songs he speaks of the billiard sharp, who is condemned to play on a cloth untrue with a twisted cue and elliptical billiard balls. He means a ball having the form of the ellipsoid of the principal axes of which I spoke a moment ago. Moynihan leaned down toward Stephen's ear and murmured, What price ellipsoidal balls? Chase me, ladies! I'm in the cavalry! 
His fellow-student's rude humour rang like a gust through the cloister of Stephen's mind, shaking into gay life limp priestly vestments that hung upon the walls, setting them to sway and caper in a sabbath of misrule. The forms of the community emerged from the gust-blown vestments, the dean of studies, the portly florid bursar with his cap of grey hair, the president, the little priest with feathery hair who wrote devout verses, the squat peasant form of the professor of economics, the tall form of the young professor of mental science, discussing on the landing a case of conscience with his class, like a giraffe cropping high leafage among a herd of antelopes, the grave troubled prefect of the sodality, the plump round-headed professor of Italian, with his rogue's eyes. They came ambling and stumbling, tumbling and capering, kilting their gowns for leapfrog, holding one another back, shaken with deep false laughter, smacking one another behind and laughing at their rude malice, calling one another by familiar nicknames, protesting with sudden dignity at some rough usage, whispering two and two behind their hands. The professor had gone to the glass cases on the sidewall from a shelf of which he took down a set of coils, blew away the dust from many points and, bearing it carefully to the table, held a finger on it while he proceeded with his lecture. He explained that the wires in modern coils were of a compound called platinoid, lately discovered by F. W. Martino. He spoke clearly the initials and surname of the discoverer. Moynihan whispered from behind, "'Good old freshwater Martin!' "'Ask him,' Stephen whispered back with a weary humour, "'if he wants a subject for electrocution, he can have me.' Moynihan, seeing the professor bend over the coils, rose in his bench and, clacking noiselessly the fingers of his right hand, began to call with the voice of a slobbering urchin, "'Please, teacher, please, teacher, this boy is after saying a bad word, teacher.' Platinoid, the professor said solemnly, is preferred to German silver because it has a lower coefficient of resistance variation by changes of temperature. The platinoid wire is insulated and the covering of silk that insulates it is wound on the ebonite bobbins just where my finger is. If it were wound single an extra current would be induced in the coils. The bobbins are saturated in hot paraffin wax. A sharp Ulster voice said from the bench below Stephen, are we likely to be asked questions on applied science? The professor began to juggle gravely with the terms pure science and applied science. A heavy-built student wearing gold spectacles stared with some wonder at the questioner. Moynihan murmured from behind in his natural voice, Isn't McAllister a devil for his pound of flesh? Stephen looked down coldly on the oblong skull beneath him overgrown with tangled twine-colored hair. The voice, the accent, the mind of the questioner offended him, and he allowed the offence to carry him towards willful unkindness, bidding his mind think that the student's father would have done better had he sent his son to Belfast to study than have saved something on the train fares by so doing. The oblong skull beneath did not turn to meet this shaft of thought, and yet the shaft came back to its bowstring, for he saw in a moment the student's way-pale face. That thought is not mine, he said to himself quickly. It came from the comic Irishman in the bench behind. Patience! Can you say with certitude by whom the soul of your race was bartered and its elect betrayed? By the questioner or by the mocker? Patience! Remember Epictetus! 
it is probably in his character to ask such a question at such a moment in such a tone and to pronounce the word science as a monosyllable the droning voice of the professor continued to wind itself slowly round and round the coils it spoke of doubling trebling quadrupling its somnolent energy as the coil multiplied its ohms of resistance moynihan's voice called from behind in echo to a distant bell closing time gents End of chapter 5, part 1 of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.